Hello and welcome to this latest discussion in the Feeding Britain podcast series, a series where we explore in depth some of the ideas, campaigns and findings that are emerging from frontline staff and volunteers, parliamentarians and research specialists across our network, all of whom are channeling their efforts toward the elimination of hunger from our country. I'm Andrew Falsey, the Director of Feeding Britain, and today I'm with Frank Field, who was the Member of Parliament for Birkenhead for 40 years and now sits as a crossbench peer in the House of Lords, as well as a trustee of Feeding Britain. Now, Frank, I recall one of the books you've given me in recent years was Hungry England by Fenner Brockway. And I can see from the inside cover here that you purchased that book 50 years ago exactly in 1973 when you were running the Child Poverty Action Group. Could you ever have envisaged when you bought that book that 50 years hence we would see the hunger on the scale that we do today? And what do you think has driven the re-emergence of that hunger? No, I can't think that that would have been the outcome at all. I thought that there would be as there had been a general improvement in living standards and particularly those of the poor. What I wanted to do with working with you in beginning Feeding Britain was to call attention to a totally unique situation in my experience, which wasn't just greater poverty, but the emergence of destitution. And it was around that concept that I thought we needed to develop both means of helping people, but drawing attention to something that was totally new in the post-war period. And I suppose, Frank, a most visible symptom of that destitution in modern Britain, particularly over these past 10 years, has been the rapid growth of the food bank movement, where more and more people of goodwill and boundless compassion have found themselves having to give out more and more food parcels to people in an acute or chronic state of despair. Can you talk us through your earliest visits to the food bank in Birkenhead as the town's MP, as well as the lessons that you drew from those visits? Well, I think I only once went to a food bank, and that in Birkenhead. And I caught the look of a woman's face in seeing her being witnessed by the town's MP to deter me from ever returning. Um, I obviously visited other projects around the country, but I was careful not to be too displayed in meeting poorer people and the shame that many of them felt in being reduced to using a food bank. And it was because of this shame that I was very keen and insistent on the model that Birkenhead should follow, which was that food would be available but people would buy it, so there would be a dignity of purchase. And no matter how low or how cheap the price was, that price was an important part of our service. And in that sense, it distinguished us from 
the general food bank movement, which was about giving out unconditional relief without any supervision of people's circumstances and the degree to which they were just subsidising what was agreed a lowish standard of living, but subsidising one, but not one which was emphasising the whole eruption of destitution into our welfare state. Very much so. And if I recall correctly, it was around the time of that visit to the food bank you described 10 years ago, when you gave me the opportunity to work in your parliamentary office. And it was in my first week, if not second, that you and I began to pull together an all-party group of MPs and peers to both investigate the emergence or re-emergence of hunger in Britain, and then with support from the Archbishop of Canterbury to devise a plan for its elimination. Could I ask what factors drove you to the decision that such a group could or should be formed in Parliament, and what did you hope it could achieve? Um, uh, I thought it should be established, given the importance and urgency of the subject matter, quite simple hunger re-emerging as part of life for many of the poorest people in Britain. And I look to fellow MPs as a way of adding weight to what you and I were doing and look to the Archbishop of Canterbury and the church as a huge, large external force, which I hoped would be more active than it was in promoting and developing our work. I mean, I started from the guess that half maybe or more of food banks were being manned by those good people who were church members and were looking for things to do to make active their Christianity. I had hoped that the Archbishop himself would become a proactive member rather than a sleeping member of our enterprise. That's really interesting. Thank you. And it was from that all-party group, of course, that Feeding Britain then emerged as a charitable body, again with the Archbishop's support, mainly to effect through a series of local pilot schemes, some of the more immediate changes in frontline or community provision that had been recommended by that parliamentary group. And I recall at the very first meeting in late 2014, I think it was, around 40 or 50 local groups came together in Birkenhead Town Hall to form the Feeding Birkenhead Initiative, the first of what is now 72 regional and local partnerships across the Feeding Britain network. And I wonder if I could ask you, what were the key changes in provision that you wished to be made and recall being made through Feeding Birkenhead? And in turn, how did the findings of that work inform or influence your parliamentary activities? Well, the establishment of the group and its formation as a charity was ready to draw attention to something new which MPs were doing. I don't think any group of MPs before has established a charity to carry out their work. 
So again, it was trying to awaken the media to what the new situation was at a grassroots level. And that was simply people were hungry and that we'd never known that in the post-war period. People might have been hard-pressed, but we never had a period where anyone of sound mind, let alone hundreds of thousands, if not more, were actually hungry. Well, I'm, I'm thinking through, Frank, from the time of Feeding Birkenhead's creation through the remainder of the 2010s, just how struck I was by how quickly some of those initiatives, like, for example, the co-location of welfare rights and best advice workers within food banks and other food projects, the provision of food and fun for children during school holidays, and then the creation of affordable food clubs like social supermarkets, really then took on so quickly in other parts of the network. And thinking in particular of the affordable food clubs, I really am struck by the parallels that seem to exist between those settings, like the Feeding Birkenhead social supermarkets, and the efforts that reformers like Margaret Llewellyn Davis of the Cooperative Women's Guild made, most notably through the Sunderland People's Store in the northeast of England, to extend their reach of cooperation and self-interested altruism or mutual self-help a lot further down the income distribution so that the very poorest people could benefit, as well as those in skilled working or lower middle class households. And I wondered if I could ask you just how big a difference do you think these modern kinds of initiative like social supermarkets could make in the years ahead with their combination of low cost but good food, a help with benefits and a link with the credit union all on people's doorsteps as part of this broader fight back against hunger and the accompanying need for food banks? There is, Andrew, a, a single crucial difference between now and the examples which you have of pre-war feeding projects, then those projects can't have been unexpected, given there was no minimum laid down by Parliament at one point to protect people from destitution. What we've seen is that minimum agreed by Parliament being undermined by other measures Parliament has agreed to, which have resulted in cuts in living standard, and therefore people being exposed to and suffering hunger. So it is a totally different situation to trying to build on a safety net, which has now been destroyed by government's own actions. What I do think we will see because of that will be the fast learning through the network of groups mimicking, replicating, re-establishing in their own areas and no doubt improving as they go the projects that make up Feeding Britain. I mean, you and I know that Feeding Britain, the idea was based because we knew that America had established Feeding America. 
so we nicked the title and the idea because it was both appropriate to do um, for Britain at that time in that we had people who were starving, which is a most shocking and terrible thing to say in an age when we're so rich. And partly with that sentiment in mind, Frank, I'm conscious that when Rishi Sunak uh, was running for the Conservative Party leadership and then since he became Prime Minister, has spoken of his desire to reduce in the first instance and ultimately eliminate the need for food banks in our country. But what he's not yet done is spell out a strategy for how he's going to get there. So if you could advise the Prime Minister on a strategy for the fulfilment of that objective, what would you say to him? I think it's really quite simple that you take your present provision, which is free, and you begin to charge for it so that you can safeguard the supply lines for what you are making sure is available. There's no way that one's going to be able to meet the Prime Minister's objective unless one tackles full frontal the idea that we should tolerate an increasing number of food banks. They're perfectly proper as emergency responses to people who are currently suffering hunger. But after that, they grow a dependency that you can just get some free food. So why not have it? And what I think we need to do is to enter an age which I've always been unclear about, and that is to what extent will supplies of cheap food develop in a way which allows supermarkets and other suppliers to continue operating as they are. I've always thought at some stage there must come a point where our movement challenges the idea that you should go off and pay full price for your food. What I'm amazed about is the extent of really good food which would otherwise go to waste if there were not projects like Feeding Britain, recycling them to people on, generally speaking, very low incomes. And as well as engineering that shift in the way we do food provision at a local level, may I return to your previous point around the erosion or the disappearance of that national minimum, particularly when applied to the benefit system? And in drawing us to a close, I wonder, are there any particular reforms that you would recommend or seek to initiate in an attempt to start rebuilding or bolstering that idea of the national minimum? Well, what I'd also hope to see with all these other activities going on is um, Feeding Britain pushing for a reintroduction to a new national minimum, which Parliament would pass and approve and enforce. And that would be a revolutionary change on what we now have. 
Excellent, Frank. Well, on that revolutionary note, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us on the podcast this week. And thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.